Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. I sensed this morning uh, early on that uh, there was uh, just a, a lot of congestion in our, in our lives coming in the door. I could sense it in people's lives. A lot going on, isn't there? A lot going on. Some of it very personal and some of it just the world we live in and, and the challenges that we face. Uh, but uh, I'm glad that uh, we could be here together today and, I, and I'm, I'm thankful that you made the choice this morning uh, to come and to worship God with us uh, instead of uh, doing something something else. Uh, so thank you for making that choice and it's our, certainly our sincere desire and our prayer that God would bless you for that decision, that, that he would meet your needs, the needs of your hearts today as we worship and as we fellowship together. As Josh mentioned, this is part four of an eight-part series called Stuffed, and I want to get right to our text this morning, which is Mark chapter 10. First of all, we're going to read from verse 17 to verse 22. So that's Mark chapter 10 reading uh, from verse 17 to verse 22. As he was setting out, in the he there, of course, uh, is Jesus. As he was setting out in his, on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Pray with me, will you? Father in heaven, thank you so much today for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your provision for us. And as we dig into this portion this morning, Lord, we just pray that, that we would be able to discern um, your will for our lives and that you would speak by your spirit through your word to our hearts and minds this day and that we would be changed by it according to your will and that we would be receptive, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you say uh, in these, these words to us today. I just thank you so much, Lord, for each one. As we share this time together, Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The characters in Scripture are real people. They're not imaginary characters made up. They're very, very real. Men and women who lived in space and time each having their own stories. 
most of the details of their lives we do not have. Though God knows them all full well. And he, in his including them in the uh, biblical storyline for us, makes their stories part of his story, the story of redemption. And God has intentionally included each one with their stories for a purpose. What is that purpose? We are to read and identify with the people on the pages of Scripture and to put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. Sometimes that calls for a bit of sanctified imagination, but the information included in the text guides us. And then we have the commentary. And it's as we allow the commentary in Scripture to speak to us right where we are at in our own lives that we hear from God. And this is why the Bible is written uh, in large part in story form. It's a dramatic genre. And today we want to get to know this guy. We uh, want to get to know this, this, this guy a bit and see how our story is, is reflected in his story. We want to put ourselves in his shoes and hear Jesus speak to us. We don't know his name, but he runs up to Jesus and kneels down before him and he asks this pressing question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Those uh, in our day that deny that Jesus was God come in human flesh, they jump on this statement from Jesus and see it as an admission. They see it as Jesus admitting that he's not really divine, that, that he's not really God in human flesh. I would only say to that point to you that if that were true, then Jesus would also have to be admitting here that he's not good. Would it not? Rather than that, I would suggest to you that Jesus is doing here what he often does in these types of encounters. He is responding to a question with a question and is it's a question that's designed to punch a hole in this man's faulty theology and get to his heart. Because that's always what Jesus is after. Take note of the man's question. What do I have to do? Tell me what I have to do. In our day as well, the common belief about life is that it is made from our accomplishments. That life is quite simply what we make of it and has nothing to do with the goodness of God. But Jesus obliges the man by directing his attention to those familiar commands first set out in Exodus chapter 20. And it's a curious thing. 
The man asks Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus refers him to the things we are told not to do. Which is how the commandments were initially framed in Exodus 20. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. With the uh, honor of thy father and mother being the exception with that positive command. But think this morning, if you were to try to sum up those commands and put them in a positive statement, what would that look like? We don't really have to wonder a whole lot about that because that's something that Jesus himself did do and Paul the apostle after him uh, did likewise and they summed those commandments up in a word succinctly as love. Uh, take a look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. You're probably familiar with this. I hope you are. It says in Romans 13, verse 9 and 10, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, of course, is the Apostle Paul writing, uh, parroting Jesus, who made that point on numerous occasions. It's also curious that Jesus here restricts his focus to the last six of the Ten Commandments, sometimes referred to as the second table, uh, which, as we just noted, uh, is summarized as neighbor love. It's curious because on different occasions, uh, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, his response was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, you'll find those exact words over two chapters in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus was asked that very question. So it's curious, is it not, that when this man asks Jesus the question, what, good master, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus restricted his focus to the last six of the Ten Commandments, summed up as neighbor love, and refrained from drawing the man's attention to the first four commandments, which are summed up by Moses in Deuteronomy as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I think in the passage as it unfolds, Jesus is going to get there. Thinking about this, this, this fellow here, can I call him a fellow? Is that too colloquial for you? If I call him a fellow and I call you folks, that's okay? So what's going on with this guy? And what does he tell us about what might be going on with us? Well, we know some things already. Uh, we know that he is um, anxious because he runs up to Jesus. We know that he's a high achiever because in his response, in verse 20, he responds, all these I have kept from my youth. Uh, the passage goes on to tell us 
that he was wealthy. That's something else we know about him. In fact, it says he was very wealthy. Matthew tells us in Matthew 19 that he was young, which makes his claim, all these I've kept from my youth, seem a little bit presumptuous. But nonetheless, Luke tells us he was a ruler, which means that along with money, he also had position and power, which I guess shouldn't surprise us because, as they say, money is power. Because if you have money, you can do pretty much what you want. So I think when we look at these things, we can say assuredly that that this was a successful person. He had all of the stuff that we tend to long for and all of the stuff that we tend to consider markers of success. And remember his question. His question is, what do I have to do? Perhaps a great deal of what this man had in his life was a matter of privilege. Perhaps he was born into a place of privilege. Or perhaps he was what we sometimes refer to as a self-made man. Or perhaps he was both. I think we can uh, determine from his initial approach to Jesus and his question, what do I have to do, that he was a make-your-own-way-in-life kind of guy. He wasn't passive. He wasn't the complacent type. He was intentional. He was responsible. He was accomplished. He was respected. He was a success. He was what we so often desire so strongly in life to be. He was elevated. He was well-behaved. He was socially responsible. And perhaps he was a little driven. He sought Jesus out, remember, running up and kneeling down. He was on a quest. I'm reminded of the the language used in Luke 12, uh, where uh, Josh had us uh, a couple weeks ago, the story of the rich fool. I'm reminded of those words, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it seems that he was that kind of, of of a person. And then the passage says in verse 21... Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, I don't want for us to miss this little phrase here because I think if we miss this, we probably miss the most important part of the whole passage. Because, for one thing, love is what the, the law of God is all about, right? We just, we just went there, right? Love is what the law of God was all about. The first four of the Ten Commandments is all about loving God. The last six are all about loving uh, one another. And Jesus himself and Paul both make that point. And and love is what life's all about too. Uh, Last week we talked about love being another word for value. And we talked about what it is that we love or value most. 
But what does God value? Or what does God value most? I think it's really important here because I think there's something we need to take from this. It says, Jesus looking at him, loved him. But Jesus couldn't have cared less about this guy's money. And Jesus doesn't care about your money or my money either. Whether you have it or whether you don't, whether the world considers you rich or poor, and he doesn't care about status, and he doesn't care about position, and he doesn't care about what we might think we've accomplished or not accomplished. What does he care about? He cares about you. He cares about me. And he knows us. And he knows things. And he knows stuff. And he knows that when we choose anything over him, we lose out every time. Because it's never about the stuff. Whether that's the stuff of material or the stuff of status or the stuff of position or privilege, we need to get this. We really need to get this. Now, you may wonder about this whole, this whole series and what, what, what might be motivating a, a series on uh, stewardship, financial stewardship, at a time when we're going through uh, a really tough time economically in our, in our society. Here we are talking about finances. But there's something that we need to understand here when it comes to the financial matters of our lives as those who profess our intentions to seek and to follow Christ. God always has our best interest at heart. Always. In all of his instructions. He knows what we need more than anything. So when it comes, for example, just for example, when it comes to giving, God knows our need to give is greater than the needs that we may give to. God knows our need to give, or you might say to be giving is greater than any need that we might give to. We've been thinking about the dangers and the cautions and the temptations associated with finances and with money and with material possessions in Scripture. In his book, The Man in the Mirror, Patrick Morley says this. He says, today men are consumed by desires to buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. He says, the dominant economic theory in America for the past 40 years or so, this was written 30 years ago, by the way, for the past 40 years, the the, uh, dominant economic theory in America has been consumerism. And Webster's Dictionary defines consumerism as the economic theory that progressive greater consumption of goods is beneficial. You may or may not be aware of this, but a lot of people are really lousy with personal finances. 
I saw this stat uh, just a few months ago. The number of bankruptcy filings in Canada rose 8.9%. That's 8.9% in 2019 over 2018. And for some of those people, it was the fifth time that they had declared bankruptcy. Now, I know that financial hardships are not always the result of personal mismanagement. I understand that. I think God knows that too. But a lot of the times, I would suggest to you that most of the time, most of our problems with finances come when we are wrongly related to those finances. Uh, You may be aware of this, but many people who express a sincere desire to follow Christ are not really that great with personal finances either. Why? Well, I'm just going to tell you what I've observed. I've observed it in my own life and the lives of others. And whether it fits in your life or not, you, you have to decide before God whether it does or not. But what I have observed, I've observed is that much of our problem with the financial areas of our lives comes because there is a reluctance for us to admit when our priorities and our values are messed up and when our desires are out of order and we're not really prepared to give the Lord the rightful place he deserves in our hearts and in our everyday lives when it comes to things like earning, saving, spending. Our relationship uh, with money. And, and, and then along with that, we don't want to talk about it either. But if we could only admit the real source of our problem to ourselves, then we could get some real help with it. Now, getting back to this fellow here, it is at this point we might expect Jesus to say something like, well, if you're already doing everything you think you're supposed to be doing, then why are you coming to me? But he wasn't fulfilled, was he? He had to know deep down inside that there had to be more. And we have to believe that Jesus knew all of this. And the text says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Don't miss that. And then Jesus says these words. He says to him, you're lacking one thing. Now, I can see this guy's ears perk up. I can see a smile start to break out on his face. One thing. Just one thing? That's awesome, because this guy, he he was used to working with lists, right? One thing? Just one? (laughs) All right. Bring it on, Jesus. This is going to be good. And Jesus says to him, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
and the smile quickly fades from his face. This is the only time in Mark's gospel where we see Jesus make this demand of anyone. There are other occasions when Jesus identifies the need for a radical renunciation of stuff. If you read through, you'll you'll see those. But this is the only place where he states categorically, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And that's the part of the statement that we tend to focus on, right? That's the part that we focus on. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. But the part that follows in Jesus' statement is really, really important. Jesus says, and come follow me. He says to this man, I want you to give it all up. And Jesus' concern for others is readily observable in his instruction here about the poor. But I wonder if we can read this these words here today and and hear Jesus saying to this man, in effect, choose me. Because I want you to take note of something in the text here. Jesus, in answering this man, he said, one thing you lack. He didn't say two things. He said one. We see two things. Jesus said one thing. What is that one thing? I would commend to you today the thought that that one thing is choose me. Do you remember last week when we were in Matthew 6 where Jesus said you can't serve God and money, you have to choose Trevin waxes, when Jesus told us we cannot serve both God and money, he used mammon, the personification of possessions, to get the point across. Much like we would say today, it's the almighty dollar. This man's question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now keep in mind that an inheritance normally is given when somebody dies. And keep in mind that Jesus is on his way to die here. When the passage starts, it says that when Jesus is on his way, when he sets out, he is on his way to die so that you and I might inherit eternal life. And there's something important for us to remember here. We're all going to die someday. That this world and life in this world is temporary. You know that, right? And Jesus in the passage here refers to treasure in heaven, right? You see that there? But do, do you know what the treasure in heaven is? Do you know what the treasure in heaven is? It's Jesus. I believe the fundamental answer to this man's question is really in this, this statement. Come follow me. Choose me. Verse 22 says, disheartedly, disheartenedly, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. Last week we talked about worship, our worship, and how worship comes from the English words worth-ship. And we asked the question, what's it worth to you? What's the kingdom of God uh, worth to you? Or what is God worth to you? You have to choose. Now, we don't know how long he lingered kneeling there in front of Jesus, weighing it all out in his mind, but we do know that that's exactly what he was doing. He was weighing it out in his mind. He was thinking about, because the text says that. He was thinking about all he would be giving up. He was thinking about his life and all that he had acquired and all that he had achieved and the lifestyle he enjoyed. It was his whole life. And here Jesus is telling him he needs to give it up. Everything, his whole life, all the things he'd worked so hard for. Not just money and possessions, but position and status and lifestyle. Maybe he thought about his family. Maybe he thought about his girlfriend. Maybe he thought about the horses he had in the barn or the summer home he had in Caesarea. We don't know the details, but we know he thought about it all. And he weighed it all out. Because Jesus was asking him to give it all up. And it was everything to him. It was everything to him. Because he had great wealth and everything that goes along with that. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Rich and miserable. I'm pretty sure we're supposed to catch that. If only I had this, I'd be happy. His story ends here for us. We would like to think that maybe he had a change of heart at some point, and perhaps he did, but we have no way of knowing that. Wouldn't it be great to see him in heaven? We don't know, but... As this man walks off into the sunset, Jesus turns and he looks at each of his disciples and he says this to them, and this is the commentary, and this we have to make sure we get. Verse 23 and following. How difficult it will be, Jesus said, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, Uh, but, But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brothers or sisters, or mother or fathers or children or land, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I think when we think about cautions and warnings about finances in scripture, I think that we could say that it reaches a pinnacle right here in the words of Jesus. He said, he said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for the camel to go through an eye, the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were stunned, absolutely stunned. They'd never heard anything like this before because wealth and substance were considered certain indicators of God's favor in Jesus' day, of course. You probably know that. The rich were the successful ones, the accomplished ones, the good ones. If they couldn't achieve eternal life, then who possibly could? So Jesus, it's like you're saying it's, it's impossible. That's right. And Jesus makes the point here, doesn't he? He says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I just, I want to say a few things to you this morning, folks. Um, I want to say giving away all your possessions will not ensure your entrance into the kingdom of God. That's important because um, how we get into the kingdom of God is really, really important, isn't it? Giving away all your possessions will not ensure your entrance into the kingdom of God because there's nothing you or I can do to merit entrance into the kingdom of God. It's impossible for us because we don't enter the kingdom by our own doing. We are ushered into the kingdom of God when we choose Jesus. Eternal life is his to give. Um, Now in verse 28, you might think, Peter's patting himself on the back a little bit here and, and, and I think tend to think he, he is as well. He says, uh, you know, Lord, we've, we've given, up, given up everything to follow you. And what follows in the commentary from the words of Jesus here are really important because Jesus sets the record straight here. Take a look at what he says. Verses 20, 20 uh, 9 through 31, as we try to wrap this up here, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. No one loses out when they choose to love Jesus more than things of this world. In three weeks' time, we're going to be taking a bit of a look at the lives of those in the early church where people suddenly found themselves in possession of a whole new way of life. They finally found themselves, suddenly found themselves belonging to a whole new uh, family, surrounded by a community of love and caring and sharing like they would never have known otherwise and had never known before. It says in that passage that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. 
and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Because no one loses out when they choose to love Jesus more than the things of this world. There is a scene earlier in the book of Mark, it's Mark chapter 3, where Jesus has just chosen the twelve. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown. Great crowds are pressing around. And uh, his family, they're trying to get a hold of him because they want to get him out of the public eye because he's saying stuff that, that uh, is very uh, uh, scandalous. And they think he's out of his mind. He's, he's totally lost his mind. We've got to get him and get him out of here. And uh, Jesus is in a, either in a synagogue or a house. We're not told. He's inside in this one scene. And the crowds are there. And his, fam- his mother and brothers come. And they want, they want to try to get him. But they can't get in through the crowd. So they send him a message. And this is the message. Uh, it's, as it's written there, it says, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And they want you. They're seeking you. And the text says there, that Jesus responded with these words. Listen to his response. He said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. No one loses out when they choose to love Jesus more than the things of this world. Last week we had it in Matthew 6, and I appreciated uh, Jay and, and, uh, and Josh and Jen, the three Js this morning, uh, doing that song that focused our attention in the scripture that Josh read, or that uh, Jay read from Matthew chapter 6. Um, do, you, do you remember Matthew 6.33? Commit it to memory. It's really short. Do Bible in memory. This is one of the one of the easiest passages to memorize because it's really short. Um, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you or provided you. There is a richness in the kingdom of God that surpasses anything of this world. And at the end of the day, if we think for one moment that we have sacrificed in order to follow Jesus, then we just don't understand the riches of Christ. We don't understand the riches of Christ, which includes a whole new way of life and multiple blessings of every kind. It's a great paradox, isn't it? We relinquish all and we end up with infinitely more than we could have imagined. It's not what we tend to think. It's counterintuitive. It surprises us. It's stunning, really. Not only more than meets the eye, but a lot of the times the very opposite of what we think. The last verse there, verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. It's God's downside up economy. I'm going to ask you to stand at this time if you would. And I'm going to ask our uh, band to come. What makes the story of the rich young ruler so very pertinent for you and I today is this fact. That while he had great possessions, 
There's not one of us here today who doesn't have more than he had. We might be tempted to think that we can't really relate to this guy because he's rich. He's the rich young ruler. But the reality is our situation is very much his in all the ways that count. It's about our relationship with Jesus and one another, but that necessarily involves our relationship with money and the things of this world. And that's what we need to sort out. And it gets sorted out. Number one, when we choose him who loves us more than we could ever imagine, more than anything. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving us so much that you were willing to give up your life and suffer and die so that we can have eternal life, which I don't deserve and which I could never achieve. achieve. Jesus, I choose you. Help me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love my neighbor as myself. And thank you for the incredible riches, the unfathomable treasures that we find in you. Amen.